Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Joint Action. This podcast is dedicated to all those out there who have osteoarthritis, aka crumbly joints. On the show, we unpack the truth and demystify the myths about the disease and its management. If you have joint pain and want to know more about how to manage it from the world's best experts, you've come to the right place. Without further ado, it is time to welcome your host, David Hunter. Hello and welcome to this week's edition of Joint Action, where we have the privilege of discussing, should I have my joint replaced? And we're joined by none other than Michelle Darcy and Peter Chung. Associate Professor Michelle Darcy is an NHMRC Career Development Fellow, an epidemiologist, registered nurse and principal research fellow in the Department of Surgery at St. Vincent's, where she leads the Musculoskeletal Epidemiology Research Group. And Professor Peter Chong is the Sir Hugh Devine Professor and Chair of Surgery at St. Vincent's Hospital in Melbourne, and they're both affiliated with the University of Melbourne. Michelle and Peter, thank you so much for coming along. Thank you, David. Thank you. Great pleasure to have you here, and I know many people are very interested in this topic, but I guess in the first instance, just if we could pick apart a little bit about what impact this virus and the lockdown is having, I guess, firstly on your research and secondly on clinical practice for you. I guess from a research perspective, we have two main streams of research that we're involved in. One is clinical trials and health services research through the hospital here at St Vincent's, and the other stream of research is all about a database or a registry of joint replacement surgery that we have and we perform a lot of analysis of that data. So for the latter one, the second one, with regard to our registry and our data linkage projects, there hasn't been too much of an impact on that. But in terms of our clinical trials, they've all been put on hold because 
by and large, they involve um, programs for people undergoing joint replacement surgery. And with COVID, elective surgery has been put on hold. So our research has as well. So that's been the major impact. Thanks, Michelle. Yeah, and, and so from the clinical perspective, as you can expect, when uh, the National Cabinet made the decision to cut down on interactions to reduce densities of people in buildings such as hospitals, as well as to protect uh, personal protection equipment, naturally the sort of work we do with job replacement went down. But what it also did was make us think a lot about what we are currently doing and how that just simply had to change with COVID from our interactions, how we interacted, what we said, the sort of tests we would do. And, and quite frankly, I think it, it made us really consider for a moment things that we would not have thought to do in the past. In other words, look at the whole paradigm of the delivery of care and outpatient care or inpatient care and uh, how that might be different. I have a strong suspicion a lot of it's going to stay uh, well and truly after uh, COVID has passed. And that, I think that would be a very good thing. I mean, obviously for elective joint surgery, which you're both intimately involved in, as you said, it's been put into to a stay, but more recently, some of the more urgent uh, elective surgery has been reinstated joint replacement as, as one example for the category two and some three joint replacements. What do you envisage will happen over the next, say, 12, 18 months, where only about 25%, as I understand it, of elective surgeries come back online? What, what would you envisage would happen over the next 12 to 18 months? Yeah, so, so I think the 25% will probably stay for about a month or six weeks. And in that period of time, and if we think of two-week blocks, whatever we do now, the impact of what we do will be read in about two weeks' time. And what we want is a level of surety that any new the introduction of any new initiative, as it were, during the time of COVID will not have a detrimental impact. So I think we'll go 25% for maybe a couple of months and then we'll increase to 50% for a few months. And by that time, there will be a certain sense of confidence of how to deal with what will be spikes of reinfection. And I think we've been very, very lucky in Australia because of the collaborative and cooperative approach that we've all taken. And what that has meant is all the necessary structures are in place to combat a second rise should it occur. And I think what this will do is it will force clinicians to start prioritising from the perspective of the patient's need and secondly, from the patient's risk. And they are two competing interests. Sometimes we do something because of need and other times we don't do something because of risk or we do it because of risk. So. Surgeons who used to just simply put someone on the list, take them off the top because they were first, will need to actually be accountable for the decisions that, that they make as a team. So, you know, this is where decision aids actually become a lot more important than before, the, the need to be guided. Would you say so? I'd say so. I think, though, it will be a slower return to normality, if you like, or a new normality for research in the context of COVID because... There are a lot of logistics to work through. Like we have some trials that are partway through and the things that the type of things that we're challenged with at the moment is how do you obtain written informed consent to participate in trials? 
how do you deliver decision aids that require person-to-person interaction that can't necessarily be done through telehealth and, and through phone calls. So while joint replacement itself might be reintroduced and slowly increase over the next 12 months, it may take a little while to work out how we reintroduce research that complements the current system or works in the current system. Yeah, and, and we don't have the answers to that yet, I don't think. Yeah, and I think, as you say, the new normal is likely to be uh, with us for a long, long period of time. Yeah. I mean, obviously, this is being developed on the fly. I don't think there is a na- necessary a national response to this, but and every hospital and health system is developing their own principles around how best to prioritise and who makes that decision. Uh, Peter, just wondering if you're willing to share with yeah. us what you might be doing at St Vincent's. Yeah. So what we did was we immediately looked to the national group to arrive at a consensus position. And what that took into consideration was, it was almost like a Delphi of what should we be doing in a catastrophic time like this that balances out the advantages, disadvantages and benefits between the public and the private facility. Because you know, right from the very word go, when the public system was shut down, there was a a trailing tail, as it were, from the private system. uh, strangely enough, there was a move to ramp up activity, uh, which would seem somewhat counter to what we're actually trying to do. And so the national group actually thought about how we would do this and really approached it from a perspective of what's best for the individual patient, the community, as well as the people undertaking care as well, their safety. So what we've done is we've just said uh, there, there will be only tumour, trauma and infection in orthopaedics until such time that they allow a graduated return of elective surgery, which they have just done. So with that, what we are now doing is limiting the number of opportunities to operate. And what that means is surgeons will now have to prioritize themselves. Because if you have an unlimited opportunity to operate, you just operate on everything. There's no real driver to to prioritize. And the priorities that have been put up would be patients who are significantly disabled by pain and dysfunction, significantly, and we would have to decide, and that would take away the gaming, as it were, because of the limitation of resource, and or patients who are deserving, but have a risk profile that would make us think about, is this the time for them? Or how, how soon can we get them in? How long do we keep them in? What is the after-surgical plan? So it's, it's, it's become very interactive and surgeons have to make the case now for each case that they wish to do. They actually have to make the case in writing as to why this is a priority, a so-called Category 2P. Uh, and Category 2, as you know, would mean surgery within 90 days. And within that 90 days, there is um, a priority, hence 2P. So the sorts of patients would be a young patient with avascular necrosis with very significant collapse and pain. It might be an older patient who is fit, but because of this disability is deconditioning. So the avascular necrosis Peter's referring to is just loss of blood supply to that, typically that portion of the the head of the femur. Um, what, What I might do now is just get you to describe yourself and then come back to the joint replacement. 
But Michelle, I guess in the first instance, could you just describe yourself in five words? What, what, what words would you choose? If I had to choose five single words or a little cluster of words, perhaps I could suggest that I am an, inter- an eternal optimist, which I think you need to be in research. I would describe myself as introverted, as personality. I'm always happy to have a go. I think I'm stubborn. Uh, I think they're all traits that you need as a researcher. Sounds very similar to someone who I know very well. It's yeah. uh, I don't know if you've ever done the Myers-Briggs thing, but it sounds very much like an INTJ. But um, Peter, I wonder if you could just tell me a little bit more about what you do in a day-to-day life. So in, in the day-to-day life, I am fairly structured schedule, and, and I guess my personality likes that. Um, fairly obsessive and compulsive and, and structure helps me achieve reasonably driven. So a lot is being done in the period of time with consultations with patients, committee meetings with groups, uh, individually operating and being knee deep, as well as doing research, which sort of speaks to the inquisitive nature of my mind. And with that, I think people who know me will find that I'm inquisitive right across the range. So I'm not necessarily seeking only one area of interest. I really feel quite a broad range, but all of them would be powered by the fact that I'm probably very driven in what I do with very clear goals at the end of what I'm hoping to achieve. So in, in a whole week, my expectation is that the tasks of the week are completed, uh, patients are happy, committees have uh, received responses that help them work, and you know my, my patients get um, cared for the best way and they feel satisfied with what I do. Thank you for sharing that with me. Now, if you could just, uh, maybe Michelle first and then Peter, just when you're not doing your J-job, what is it that you like to do when you're not at work? The few main things that I enjoy the most um, is I'm involved in a book club that has been running for over 20 years. But it's actually a bit of a front for what we also call an eating club. So we choose a book to read every month, but it's really all about the restaurant that we meet to discuss the book. So that is one of the things that I really like to do. Uh, I do like to walk. Uh, and when I say walk, I really do like nature walks. And I like travelling to places where I can go walking, where it's peaceful and serene. But obviously travelling is... Not on the cards at the moment. Yeah, it sounds wonderful, but I'm sure we'll get back to travel at some yes. point in our not-too-distant yes. future. Peter? So I'm passionate about lots of things, but perhaps over the last decade, decade and a half, what I'm really passionate about outside work is uh, horse riding. So I'm in equestrian, and I do dressage and show jumping and cross-country riding. I like competing. So it's, it's something that in many respects also speaks to my character of uh, obsessive, compulsive, and, and um, very rigorous in the way you have to learn to do half these things. I mean, the horse doesn't know English and I don't know a horse, so somehow we've got to learn to communicate with each other to do the sorts of things that, you know, the, the judge wants us to do. So it's very mindful pastime. You actually have to think every moment. You have to ride every step that the horse takes. And so uh, the engagement teaches you a lot about yourself, teaches you a lot about life and communication and you know how to conduct how do you conduct yourself in 
sometimes very strange situations. So it's, it's a very pleasurable, mind-releasing type activity. Thank you very much for sharing that about yourselves. Peter, I wonder if you could describe what a joint replacement is. So a joint replacement is surgical procedure. It's a technique where worn out joints, in the case of a hip, a ball and socket joint, in the case of a knee, for example, it's a curved surface rubbing across a smooth, flat surface, uh, where the years and years of rubbing or injury have caused the cartilage on the ends of the joints to wear away, just like the lino in the kitchen floors wearing away near the door. And you can suddenly see the floorboards. And, and that's what arthritis is. And so we replace that surface. We put the new lino in the kitchen floor. We put a new lining in the joint. And sometimes that means putting an implant, a metallic implant or plastic bit in there that gives you the new ball and the new socket or the new surface to your knee. That allows you to move the joint smoothly without the catching. It is one that is uh, takes away pain to a degree and allows the knee or the hip to move through a better range than before in a more pain-free manner. Great. Now, for the person who has a joint replaced, how long would they expect to be in hospital and typically how long would it take for them to recover back to their normal type of function? Yeah, well, that, that depends on which joint, but if, if I were to average it out, uh, people would be in hospital anywhere between two days and six days on average. And oftentimes the younger patients are the ones who would leave uh, earlier than the older patients because these days the um, principle is to get people up and out of bed as soon as possible so they don't lose their confidence. They, they really keep and hang on to their independence and their mobility. So that's what we, people try and do. And, and getting people out of bed earlier means that they can get home a lot sooner. And indeed, the successful uh, programs have two-thirds to three-quarters of the patients going home and perhaps the others are staying a little longer or going into rehabilitation. So that's the acute phase. Uh, in, in the medium phase, surgeons always tell their patients, you know, you'll be much better in six weeks to the point that you'll be able to drive your car and be a lot more active in the garden, traps, maybe going and chipping balls on the driving range at about six to eight weeks. And about three months to six months is when people start to feel totally in control of that joint so that they will begin to plan travel, go out to functions more freely, and in some cases actually take on a lot more physical activity depending on how fit and well they are. For the average person who has a joint replacement, what usually would they expect to pay and how much would it cost the healthcare system, again, on average? Yeah. So in the public system, they would pay nothing. And uh, it's part of our universal healthcare system. In the private setting, they could also pay nothing if their surgeon is associated with a no-gap system. Then there is the second level, which is a gap system, where they pay a fixed amount and the bill is sent directly to the insuring company. And those sorts of patients may pay up to about $500 for a joint replacement, say. Then they're the ones where the patient gets the bill from the surgeon, from the anaesthetist, and from the physician who may be looking after them and from the assistant. That, that perhaps would, would amount to somewhere up to about eight to $10,000 as a whole. The total cost to the system 
for joint replacement, it is about, in today's numbers, about $25,000 per joint replacement to the system. And you spoke a little bit about this before in terms of pain, but what benefits can someone expect from a joint replacement and what, and what can go wrong? Yeah, well, I, th I think the most important thing that both the patient and the surgeon has to focus on is the benefit is one of pain relief. And the more successful joint replacements give more pain relief. The less successful ones, you will have some relief, but perhaps not to the level which the patient is expecting. The second thing you're looking for is an improvement in function. And function is really a combination of strength and range of motion. Because if you've got range of motion and strength, you can move things. And it's that movement that gives patients their, I guess, their mobility, the, the independence to get about uh, in a way that's pain-free. So th th that's what you can expect in varying degrees. But with that, they also have surgery that is risky. Even though joint replacement surgery is done all the time, it can be a risky subject because of the anesthetic, because of age, because of some of the problems that patients bring with them, like a dicky heart, uh, lungs that don't work so well because they've smoked, maybe because they're not as well as they can be because of diabetes. And today we have to accept that there are a lot of overweight patients around and their overall health is, is uh, much less because they're overweight. So those are the risks uh, that could cause something to go wrong, such as infection, heart attacks, strokes, uh, fractures, dislocations, things like that. Typically, on average, how long should a joint replacement last? Again, it'll vary between a hip and a knee, but just an overarching average. Well, on average, uh, about nine out of 10 joints will be the same joint 15 years from the time that they're operated on. So nine out of 10 people can expect their joint to be the same one that they had in for about 15 years. And from that time on, there's a deterioration that results in uh, a revision. And you, you can expect that if you're younger than the age of about 75, that it is likely you will need a revision in your lifetime, at least one revision in your lifetime. Great. Um, Michelle, I'm going to stop picking on Peter for a second and come to you. But how do surgeons balance risk and benefit and what factors might determine their tolerance for risk? Well, I think perhaps it'd be interesting to hear what Peter's perspective is on how surgeons actually balance the benefits and risks. I can say from a research perspective that we did try and quantify this in a study uh, where we did survey about 400 surgeons a little while ago and we're actually analysing that data now. And despite surgeons having a varying amount of experience where they practice, whether it be private or public, their personality traits we looked at, there were no real links between any of those characteristics and how surgeons might balance these benefits and risks. But what did come through from that research was that pain was very central to, to decision-making and, and considering surgery and associated risks. So for surgeons, pain was the overarching that um, involves their decision-making and how that actually impacts on quality of life from the patient's perspective. So not just having the pain, but is it interfering with sleep and 
someone's ability to function. So that, that was the thing that came through strongest in that research so far. But I guess in terms of how you would actually make that decision, Peter, I mean... Well, I think surgeons have to know why they're operating. And I think, as I said earlier, uh, pain and, and function is by far the most um, important driver of agreeing that a patient is a candidate. Then the patient will come with risks and the surgeon has to look at ways of mitigating those risks or lowering them. And that's where perioperative, preoperative optimization is so important. And, you know, you might say to the patient, if they're overweight, you know, you deserve this job replacement because I can see on x-ray and the way you move and the symptoms you tell me that you deserve it. But you carry a risk that makes it um, highly likely that something is going to go wrong. And you give them that rate, that proportion. And then what you can say is, well, let's lower this. Let's go for weight loss. Let's go for getting you better, more healthier, fitter. And by the way, your diabetes is out of control, so let's get you to see someone about that. And so that's how we start to balance and mitigate it. But there are also other elements that we need to think about. And, and these actually become quite important, and that is the patient's mental state. Because you can have everything uh, optimized, but if the patient's mental state isn't, isn't set in the right way, what you might have is a mismatch of expectations. And all of a sudden, the best operation is gonna, isn't going to produce the best result. The final thing also, this question is actually quite pertinent to the seniority of a surgeon. Because oftentimes, when we are confronted with a patient, we are reminded by all the other patients that were similar, how did they go? So we have a benchmark accrued over time. And if you're a very junior surgeon, you may not actually have that benchmark. So you may either operate on no one or operate on everybody. And once again, this is the time where decision aids, actually objective evidence-based aids help them come to a better understanding, accrue. It, it, those decision aids actually bring together the experience of others yeah. for, for the, the younger surgeon to use. And I think, you know, promoting that's probably a good way of helping now as well. That's really helpful. Now, what are some realistic expectations from a joint replacement and some common misconceptions of patients themselves? Well, we actually did a study on this, a qualitative study where we interviewed patients on a waiting list um, for knee replacement. And in terms of realistic expectations, I think it is realistic to expect improvement and significant improvement in pain. But I think it's not realistic to expect complete pain resolution necessarily um, in all cases. Some of the misconceptions that patients were exhibiting when in this study that we did was that when a person has advanced osteoarthritis or moderate to advanced osteoarthritis, that surgery is the only option for them, that it was considered to be curative um, in terms of replacing lost cartilage. And there was a um, misconception that physiotherapy would only further damage a damaged joint. So if you actively undertook some physiotherapy that you could actually make your um, osteoarthritis worse. So, 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 so that was some of the um, common themes that were coming through across the patients. Fantastic. Now, either of you, but what impact does age, obesity, pain, severity of disease on an x-ray, um, 
the person's psychosocial status have on outcomes? Well, I think they actually have uh, a huge impact. And in fact, a study that we did looking at bringing all these things together in a responder tool that we did, we, we combined their mental health, we combined factors around their obesity, their general wellness, um, their preoperative function, and their x-rays, severity and x-rays. We brought it all together in this responder tool. And what we found was that there were there was a significant difference in patient satisfaction depending on where whether the tool predicted that they were going to be a responder. And what we found was that patients who had who did the best were those with very severe radiographic x-rays of arthritis, who were not obese, who had good mental health scores and were generally fit functionally speaking. And if you had that, you, you could be packaged into the green lights, the people who should go ahead and do that. And by the same token, at the other end of the curve, we had those who were in the red light uh, area where you had to stop and you had to really consider the wisdom of having joint replacement surgery. And then there's the middle group where, you know, it, it could go either way. And so what we did was we looked at what are the things in that middle group which we could actually alter for the benefit of the patient, making them fitter, making them Wait, we can't change the degree of arthritis they have, but there are things that we can change. And by changing them, produce objective evidence of improvement that when you reapply the tool, move them into the green light group. So, you know, I, I think the, the, those points of weight, mental health, well-being do make a big difference and should be actively considered when surgeons are confronted with the question whether to operate or not. And, you know, I'm not sure whether it's come from your studies or someone else, but one statistic that you hear bandied around is that one in four people may have a poor outcome from their surgery, meaning that their pain is no better at 12 months than it was when they first rocked up to see the surgeon. Do those characteristics that you were just describing there, Peter, help in terms of predicting those who are more likely to have that poor outcome? And, and is that accessible for patients in advance of seeing a surgeon? Yes, yes. The, the, the predictor tool we have is a predictor tool because it, it looks to identifying these people before surgery is actually done. And so it's just a matter of whether the surgeon or indeed the system or the patient wishes to collect that information to help them come to the decision. Because like the problem we have at the moment with COVID-19, it's better to know that you've got it and then do something about it, they're not. And aids like that, and there are other aids around as well, uh, all seek to identify before the event uh, whether you're likely to better and therefore whether you can change or not. And I think it's an empowering tool to have. Fantastic. Now, I know this is probably a little bit contentious and you're, any honesty here uh, is willingly shared, but does the surgeon or the centre in which they operate influence a person's likelihood of a good or a poor outcome? It, it, it does, and I think there's literature out there and really hard evidence from the National Joint Replacement Registry to say that surgeons who do above a certain number of joints per year are associated with a better revision rate, for example. And, and in Australia, if you, if you do more than 20 joint replacements a year, 
you, you would be better than the people who do less than 20 joint placements a year. And they're actually a very large group who do only up to 20 joint placements a year. And, and these figures are replicated overseas as well. And so we know that volume of practice is very, very important. Uh, being au fait with complexity of surgery for surgeons uh, is well associated with um, outcomes. Now, certain centres promote joint arthroplasty. And it is those centres who combine not only the surgeons who do high volume, but also uh, the infrastructure and the framework through which the patient's journey becomes part of. And they are there to mitigate risk because they know what's going to happen next. They're there to expedite uh, care, rehabilitation, and return to normal function. And I think that coordinated multidisciplinary approach, which you would more likely find in a centre, is often associated with um, a better outcome and, and this applies both in the public and the private setting as well. Great. I think that'll be really helpful for many people who are out there. Now, what is the optimal timing for getting a joint replaced and does that differ depending upon whether you're looking at it from the patient's perspective or that of their healthcare system? So when I think about optimal timing there are pro- for, from the patient's perspective, there are probably some key things that need to be addressed. Obviously, there's the patient presentation, that they, their radiographic arthritis severity warrants, that it's severe enough to warrant surgery and that their um, pain pro- profile is matched with that, that they're medically optimised. So there's all of those types of things. But there's all, it's very important that the patient is ready and willing to undergo joint replacement surgery. And I think that decision needs to be made after spending or after undertaking a, a formal decision-making process, weighing up all these risks and benefits with the surgeon and perhaps using some sort of tool to assist with that. And I think that there needs to be a lot of, uh, the patients need to have considered uh, evidence-based non-surgery interventions that are somewhat tailored to their individual situations. So physiotherapy is great for everybody with osteoarthritis. If someone presents and they're overweight, you would hope that they had undergone some weight loss intervention. If they have um, levels of psychological distress, that that's been addressed as well. So I think it's important when patients are presenting that they have actually, they have discussed all of these things and that there's been this real concerted effort to trial non-surgery interventions so that the patient feels that they're you know, other options have been exhausted and there, and there's a warrant there for, for surgery itself. In terms of the healthcare system, I don't know that they would have a different perspective to say, but whether the infrastructure's there to deliver on the non-surgery interventions and those other options, I'm not quite sure that they exist in an in effective um, form. Can I, can I just uh, jump in there? And I think... There are, there are really two sorts of um, patients. One has such severe osteoarthritis that they creak in when they come in. They're helped in and out by a helper. They can barely move. They're very stiff and they're in considerable pain. So under that circumstance, I, I think pragmatically, the role of adjuvant treatments with physio things like that may, may not be practical for them. So they probably represent a small group but a group that becomes readily apparent when you see them. Then there's another group where they will have, and, and I see them, they, they'll have significant arthritis, they'll 
say all the right things, where the pain is, where it's going. You examine. But I always say to them, you come when the quality of life for you has declined to the point that you feel is now an incursion and you want a change. And they'll say, well, when is that? Well, when do you think I need surgery? And I often say, well, if you're asking me that question, you're not ready. If you ask me, when should I have my surgery? You're not ready. When you ask me, should you, do you think I should have my surgery? You're not ready. Because you'll know when you're ready. You'll come through that door. And no matter what I say, you're going to say, I need this surgery. And that actually helps push the patient back. You know, it's a great way of pushing, pushing back against the patient and uh, getting them to really own the problem that they have, that it's, they're not just turning up and someone's going to solve, uh, easily solve through surgery. They're going to have to really understand how this is impacting their life. And I, and I think the better outcomes are the ones where the patient drives the decision, not the surgeon. We've already touched upon this next question a little bit, but I'm just wondering if you could expand on it formally. But how does a surgeon determine who is suitable and are there any robust criteria out there that surgeons might use in terms of determining who's appropriate, who they might advise against surgery, and who's more likely to have an adverse outcome? Well, just from a surgeon's perspective, uh, the real world at the coalface, there's no question that the x-ray that the patient brings with them or has it is really, really important because we do see a whole range of x-rays being cast up of patients who are dissatisfied. And some of them, the degree of arthritis they have really doesn't match perhaps the indication to do surgery. And we have to accept, and they're published on this, that you know, uh, one in three patients may be getting the operation outside the standard indication. So what we do know is that high-grade significant arthritis is seen on x-rays is associated with outcome. And so if it's really severe, they at least fall into the maybe we should operate on your group. But if they don't have severe arthritis in the x-ray, then they definitely shouldn't be operated on. So that's, that's a very simple, easy thing. There must be a consistency in the story of, you know, I get my pain and it is here. If, if the story, if the pain doesn't match what would be your typical picture, we should be very careful about going down that path. And, and, and also the patient's general well-being. Are they overweight? Are they mentally up to it? What are the things that they carry in terms of heart, lung, kidneys, blood, diabetes, whatever it is, that could affect and complicate an otherwise smooth journey? And those things will have to be taken into consideration and need to be. Doctors need to spend a lot more time on those. And it's truly the combination of the surgeon, the patient, and the other physicians and allied health staff that bring it all together. Brilliant. I think that'll be really very helpful. If there are people out there who want to learn more to make a better informed choice in hopefully patient-friendly resources, are there any decision aids that you might recommend that might help with this process that are readily accessible? Well, I, I think today on the internet, um, you know, the access to website, for example, Arthritis Australia, um, you know, My Joint Pain, yes. uh, instructional information, uh, brochures, uh, MSK Australia have the same thing, and there are user groups out there as well. I think what we have to be careful about is that patients should be directed to these well-known sites 
because we did a study recently and published on it that um, there are a significant number of sites that have not been, let's put it, credentialed to give out information in job replacement, but they do. And, and there's, um, a, there's a particular mark uh, or imprimatur called the, the HonCode. And HonCoded websites have been reviewed by the HonCode people, as it were, and found to contain the sorts of things that one could rely on credibly for information. So patients should look at the quality of the site, but there are certain national sites like Arthritis Australia, MSK Australia, where information is readily available that serves the public in terms of education in the first instance. I think there's um, a number of the private health insurance companies do put out very good um, information um, packages on their website as well uh, about how you would make a decision around job replacement and, and what are some of the processes involved in that, what are the alternatives to that as well. So that I find that um, some of the material from the private health insurance companies' websites is quite informative and pitched for the, the lay audience as well. That's really great. And we'll make those available in the uh, show notes. What should I have asked you that I forgot to ask? I think one of the areas that are quite topical at the moment, and particularly in physiotherapy, are um, the role of programs of physiotherapy rather than physiotherapy per se. That's becoming more and more popular with Australia being one of the, the international sites where you would look at that. And, and I think that, that's an area that needs to be studied a lot more. The other thing also is our general practice community. I think the general practitioner has a huge role in managing these patients because, in fact, in Australia, the referral to a specialist comes from a general practitioner in the first instance or from a rheumatologist. And making sure that the rheumatology and the general practice professions understand what's available other than surgery, so, so as much information uh, can be put through those groups uh, and links to, to sites which can be presented as alternatives to surgery, I think adds to the armamentarium of these physicians who, who are considering whether their patients should have surgery or not. So I, I think that, that, that's an important area. Michelle, mm -hmm. if you could do anything to improve health and healthcare, what would you do? Well, I'm biased. My bias is being a researcher, but I'd like to see more research funding for a um, osteoarthritis trials because I think we have a lot of great initiatives but it's getting those initiatives implemented that is the challenge and so we can do that by uh, having more research into implementation trials in the space of osteoarthritis so and I think that that would go a long way to contributing to improving people's health outcomes from osteoarthritis. I hear you and I share your enthusiasm for a similar cause. But Peter, if you could remove all barriers and constraints, what project would you do? Well, that's an interesting question because I think the problem of research today is that we think in terms of projects. And what my mind, when you say what my project would be, my project would actually be 
how do I develop a program of research that approaches the management of arthritis in a very comprehensive way? Because oftentimes we're driven by our own biases as to what we believe are the most important elements and we leave out the others. And I think as a surgeon and in the field of surgery where I play, and I don't play outside the field of surgery very much, what I'm trying to do is how do I optimize surgery? And so that has a lot to do with decision-making, with alternatives, with efficiency, with effectiveness, um, the health economics of that. Because all that eventually translates into the feasibility of getting research data and findings into practice. So I, I want a very comprehensive approach that brings the best minds together. And my project would be to find a way of recruiting those best minds and developing the resources to drive them to, so that we can make our research as a group really purposeful and target, truly targeted towards the best for the community. Well, I hope you get your wish and vision to come true because I'm, I'm inspired just sitting here. But if you could have a billboard, Peter, with anything on it, what would it be and why? At great risk of plagiarising, I would have on the billboard, just do it. Because I think we, we um, spend a lot of time thinking about what we can't do and why we can't do it. I rather know what you can do. I'm not interested in what you can't do. I want to know what you can do. And in, in the drive to do something, it forces you to plan, to strategize, to look at the barriers, to look at all the things that you will need, the ingredients to build the cake, to make the cake as it were, to build the house. And it forces you to start thinking in a way that is, is problem solving and it commits you. So I, I just think that phrase, just do it, forces you to go down that path. It, you know, if you're a swimmer, you're going to have to hit the water sooner or later. I'm sold. I'm sold. Michelle, is there one piece of advice or knowledge or wisdom that you'd like to give to people out there with osteoarthritis? Well, I would suggest that there is no one size fits all when it comes to effectively managing osteoarthritis, but it's important that patients play an active role in their planning and the management of their osteoarthritis. So for me, it's, it's re it really is about developing a partnership with your care providers, whether they're surgeons or physios or um, any other allied health people. It's actively participating in managing your disease. Michelle and Peter, thank you so much for your time, your insights. I think that's enormously uh, informative and hopefully a lot of people get a lot out of that. Thank you very much, David. It's a pleasure. That's all for this episode of Joint Action. Between now and next time, please do take care of yourself, stay strong and stay active. And thank you very much for listening. Thanks for listening to Joint Action with David Hunter. If you like our show and want to know more, check out www.jointaction.info. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends and family. If you have any questions, you can email us at hello at jointaction.info and follow us on Twitter at jointactionorg. This podcast was hosted by David Hunter, edited by Vicky Duong, music produced by Jordan Hunter. The information posted on this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Anyone 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.